is speaking about salvation in this passage. But think about this. Scripture refers to those who are ungodly, those who are pagans, those who are lost as people who have no hope. And so spiritually speaking, you and I who are in Christ, you and I who are followers, who are disciples, should never embrace a mentality that's hopeless. Because we are the bearers of hope. See, today I want to talk about the blindfold of negativity because I think it might just be the blindfold that is most worn by Christians. And there's no reason to be wearing it. But the problem we have is that we don't realize we're wearing it because of the form that we allow this blindfold to take. And I think there's four ways in which we, we wear a blindfold of negativity. Negativity. I think we wear the blindfold of negativity when our complaints hinder our contentedness. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we have Paul writing about the Israelites, reflecting upon their story. And he used them as an example of what not to do. Never the place you want to be in, to be used as an example of what not to do, right? And that's what Paul does in 1 Corinthians chapter 10 in regards to the Israelites. And, and he uses them as such an example that we might not desire evil as they did, he said in verse 6. And then he identified the evils they desired. He identified in verse 7 the evil of idolatry. In verse 8, sexual immorality. And most pertinent to this study is what he identified in verses 9 and 10. Complaining. Now, how did complaining make a list with idolatry and sexual immorality? It, aren't those two way worse than complaining? Well, think for a moment about the Israelites' story. Because they were notorious complainers. They complained whenever they encountered difficult circumstances, such as when they seemingly were trapped by the Red Sea with the Egyptian army in hot pursuit or when they were stuck in the wilderness without a source of water. To some degree, we're sympathetic to those complaints, though. And actually, God was, too. At first, God was, was, was patient with them and tolerated such complaints. Throughout the book of Exodus, God repeatedly met their complaints with a miraculous solution and used that situation as an exercise in faith. But then we arrive to the book of Numbers, and, and God, God's not tolerating their complaints the same way when we get to the book of Numbers. So I want you to notice Numbers chapter 11. In Numbers chapter 11, the Israelites complained because they were tired of eating the same old thing. And their discontent over this minor issue is captured in verses 5 and 6 of Numbers chapter 11. Here's what they said. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. Really, nothing? It didn't cost slavery, possibly? They, they want to return to Egypt to eat fish, despite the fact that doing so meant they would have to be slaves to the Egyptians. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt that cost nothing. The cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlic. But now our strength is dried up and there is nothing at all but this manna to look at. And if you look down at verse... 
10 of this same chapter, we're told that the anger of the Lord blazed hotly. In other words, this complaint so irritated, so frustrated, so agitated God that his anger burned intensely toward them. Now think about this complaint for a moment. Think about what they're ultimately communicating. Why did this complaint irritate God so much when other complaints didn't? I think it's because their complaining here was an expression of discontent. God miraculously provided manna for them every day while they were out there in the wilderness. So they, they, they were never without food. They were never without sustenance. They were never hurting to survive. Even though they were a massive, nomadic group of people who required a great deal of food, and yet God provided that every day. But they were dissatisfied. They wanted more dietary options. So when they complained, it demonstrated a lack of gratitude toward God. In other words, they didn't appreciate what God was doing for them. And for that reason, I believe God's anger was aroused in a way that it had not been aroused before. I want you to think about this for a moment, about complaints. There are times when our complaints are justifiable. You have to remember that according to Exodus chapter 2 and verse 23, where the story of the Exodus begins, God's rescue operation for the Israelites was initiated after he heard them groan because of their slavery and cry out for help. In other words, that whole rescue operation started because God heard their complaints of injustice. And so we have to acknowledge, at the very least, that God never condemned anyone for complaining to him about tragedy, about unjust treatment, about wicked civilizations. People cried out against Sodom and Gomorrah. God heard that, and he came down and dealt with it. People cried out about the Ninevites. He sent a prophet to go talk to them. God hears complaints when they deal with, with injustice or or when they deal with wickedness, or when they deal with tragedy. But I want you to stop and think for just a moment. What have you complained about this past week? Were the complaints you uttered this past week cries against tragedy? Were they cries against a lack of justice? Were they cries against the wickedness of this world? Or were they simply expressions of discontent? Based on the story of the Israelites, God hears the former, but God hates the latter. My guess is the majority of the complaints we make have to do with petty issues. How many of you complained about your job this past week? Not me, I never complain about my job, for the record. How many of you complained about the weather this past week? How many of you complained about the cost of living this past week? How many of you complained about somebody you encountered this past week that you just don't like? 
how many of your complaints this past week, and, and, and don't get me wrong, my guess is that every one of us had a complaint this past week. How many of those complaints were in the justifiable category? The kind that God listens to, and how many were just your expression of discontent? You see, Scripture makes it very clear that such complaining about discontent is wrong. We read Philippians chapter 2 this morning, and if you'll return there, you'll see that Paul said, Do all things without complaining and without disputing, that you may become blameless and harmless children of God without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Paul's not saying, don't cry out to God with your problems. You have to remember that he instructs us to pray about everything just 40 or so verses after he said, don't complain. Instead, Paul is saying, don't express discontentment. Learn to be content. In fact, that's a theme in this very letter, in the letter of Philippians. Paul makes it clear in this letter that that disciples can find contentment through Christ who strengthens them. And, And Paul teaches that he himself had to learn contentment in whatever situation he found himself, whether it was poverty or hunger or persecution. Just go to chapter 4 of Philippians and you'll see that the whole idea he's presenting is that we need to learn to be content. And it reminds me of the old parable about the stonecutter that I know I've told before. But there once was a stonecutter whose job was to go and find precious stones that could be used in the building of structures and to hew them out of mountains and cliffs and valleys and wherever it was he found them. And he was so tired of his job. One day he saw a, a, a king... And he saw how luxurious that king's life was. And he said, I wish I could be a king. And poof, he became a king. But then one day as he was part of a parade through town and he was sitting in his his chariot, the sun was beating down on him. And he was sweating and he was hot and he was miserable. And he thought to himself, oh, I wish I could be the sun. And then I would be powerful. And poof, he became the sun. But then after he became the sun, and he, showed, he, he was shining brightly on the world and enjoying his existence, but, but then suddenly a cloud came along and blocked his rays from reaching the earth. And he thought, well, that cloud's more powerful than me. It can decide whether or not I can reach the earth. So I wish I'd become a cloud. And guess what? He became a cloud. And he would go around and he would rain where he wanted to rain and he would send snow if he wanted to send snow. And he thought he was great until a wind started pushing him and he couldn't control where he was going. And he said, you know what, that wind is more powerful than me. I wish I was the wind. And poof, he became the wind. And he thought it was grand because he could go wherever he wanted to go, but then suddenly... He came to a mountain, and he couldn't get through the mountain. And he thought to himself, that mountain is more powerful than I. I wish I was in a mountain. I wish I was a mountain. And poof, he became a mountain. And then one day, as he stood there boldly as a mountain, he felt something chip away at the bottom of him and looked down and saw a little stone cutter carving out stone. He said, oh, I wish I was a stonecutter again. 
You see, contentment is something we learn. Contentment is something we pursue. And contentment is something that Paul says the Christian is to possess. And when our complaints are hindering our contentment, we may just be blindfolded by negativity. But that's not the only way this blindfold operates. We can also be blindfolded by negativity when our fear trumps our faith. There's a story in the life of Elijah that often goes unnoticed. It appears in the first few verses of 1 Kings chapter 19. You have to remember that in 1 Kings chapter 18, the chapter before this, Elijah had this grand victory for God at Mount Carmel. He's been fighting against these, uh, these prophets of Baal and fighting to proclaim God in a nation that had forgotten God, in a nation that had started worshiping a different deity. And here he is on top of Mount Carmel, and he's got a contest going, and he wins. More correctly, God wins. God demonstrates his power, and as a result of the work that God does through Elijah on Mount Carmel, once again the nation of Israel is proclaiming Yahweh is Lord. The prophets of Baal are defeated. You would think in this moment, This is the heyday of Elijah's career. He can rest now. He's accomplished his ultimate goal. He's defeated the enemy deity. But even after a mountaintop experience like this, worry can get the best of a prophet like Elijah. And so in 1 Kings chapter 19 and verse 1 through 5, we read this. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me, and more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And verse 3 of 1 Kings chapter 19 tells us that Elijah was afraid, and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough now, O Lord. Take my life away, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept. Elijah, through the power of God, just orchestrated the greatest spiritual victory in Israel probably since David defeated Goliath. And what does he do next? He runs for his life because he's worried about what Jezebel might do to him. This is God's prophet who has been repeatedly provided for by God during a three-year famine. He was fed by birds. Who does that? Who eats that? But not only was he provided for all those three years, but King Ahab was searching for him those three years, and God protected him those three years so that Ahab couldn't find him. If there's anybody, if there's anybody that should have confidence in God's ability to protect, it's Elijah. And now he's running for his life. Has he forgotten what God did for him? It just goes to show that it doesn't matter who you are or what you've accomplished. Worry can rot faith overnight. Those of you over the age of 30 will remember the first Gulf War. 
Back in 91, when Saddam Hussein and the nation of Iraq invaded Kuwait, and the Allied nations led by the United States ordered him to leave, and he threatened that if the Allied nations invaded his country, he would fire missiles into Israel. And on January 17, 1991, the Allied nations did, in fact, launch Operation Desert Storm against Iraq. And Saddam Hussein responded as promised the next day by firing missiles into Israel. A total of 39 missiles were sent into Israel during seven weeks of warfare. But after the war ended, research showed that more people died in Israel as a result of heart attacks during that stretch than those that died by impact from missiles. And the conclusion that researchers reached, that doctors reached, was that the emotional stress created by the threat of the missiles killed more people than did the actual missiles. And the point is this. Worry accomplishes nothing. But worry can blindfold us to reality. We have any worriers in here? Yeah, I'm one. I didn't fall asleep till 3 o'clock this morning because I couldn't shut my mind off because I was worrying about a problem I had with my cell phone and thought I was going to have to replace it. And I was worrying about a piece of this sermon that I hadn't quite figured out how I was going to do yet. And I was worried that we let Micah stay out in the snow too long because her hands were red and frozen when she came in and we took a long time to warm her up. And so my mind wouldn't shut off last night. And you hear me say these things that I'm worried about, and aren't they so petty and insignificant in the grand scheme of things? Of course Micah's hands were going to warm up. She was playing in snow for five hours. And what's my phone? So what if it crashes and doesn't work anymore? Jay's didn't work for like five years and he kept using it. And so what if I haven't figured out one piece of this sermon? I mean, I preach long enough as it is. One piece you'd love for me to throw out. But yet we worry, don't we? And we stress, and we're afraid of all these things that come at us, and it eats away at us, and it can diminish our faith so fast. But it's a blindfold we put on. And you know what Jesus had to say about worry? If you go to Luke chapter 12, he told us not to worry. And he said there's two real good reasons why you shouldn't worry. The first is because worry is irrational. In Luke chapter 12 and verse 25, he said, Which of you by worrying can add a single hour to his lifespan? In other words, Jesus indicated that worrying doesn't do anything for tomorrow. It only ruins today. It's completely irrational to worry about something you can't control. And then Jesus also says in Luke chapter 12 and verse 29 and 30 that worry is irreligious. He said, do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Matthew says, the pagans seek after these things. And so what Jesus is communicating here is that worry is a characteristic of the world, of pagans, because the world tries to make an idol out of certainty. The world worships what it can control. But we, as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, we're instructed to worship only the one who is in control. 
Maybe that's why Peter instructed us in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6 and 7 to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time He may exalt us and then goes on to tell us to cast all our anxieties on Him because He cares for us. Humility is accepting your limitations, your inferiority, your lack of control along with God's omnipotence and God's superiority and God's sovereignty. And if you do that, then you should come to the conclusion that you have nothing to worry about. But yet we do it because we wear this blindfold of negativity. And we also wear the blindfold of negativity when our criticism is louder than our compliments. There's a little story in Mark chapter 9 that doesn't really get talked about very much. It starts in verse 38 and it goes through verse 41. And what happens here in Mark chapter 9 is that John, one of Jesus' apostles, the beloved apostle, if you will, John comes up to Jesus and says that the apostles had encountered someone who was not a part of their group and was casting out demons in the name of Jesus. And John says, hey, we, we handled that the best way we knew how. You know what we did? We told him to stop. They did the only logical thing they could think of. They made that guy stop casting out demons in the name of Jesus. What that tells us is that John and the rest of the apostles were critical of what this guy was doing, not because it wasn't a good thing, but because it wasn't in cooperation with them, because it didn't include them. Have you ever experienced that kind of circumstance? Maybe you came up with an idea and you shared it with somebody else only to have them shoot it down immediately. Maybe you began a task thinking that you were doing a good thing only to have somebody come along and tell you how unnecessary it is. More to the point, have you ever contributed to such a circumstance? Maybe your spouse came to you with an idea to help improve your marriage or to grow your family's faith and you shot it down without giving it fair consideration. Maybe you saw a brother or a sister in Christ or even your own child trying to serve the kingdom in some fashion and instead of encouraging them, you told them how ineffective their strategy is. I have to admit, I've been guilty of such criticism. I've had, I've had members in the body of Christ come tell me an idea they have of something they can do for the kingdom and my response is to tell them how it's not going to work. What right do I have? You see, we can be so critical sometimes that all we do is tear people down. Go back to the story in Mark chapter 9, and I want you to see how Jesus responded to the apostles' criticism of this guy. It's in Mark chapter 9, verse 39, that Jesus says, Do not stop him. For no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterward to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. In my opinion, as I reflected on this story and applied it to this teaching today, I felt like Jesus was saying, don't criticize this guy just because he's not a part of our group. He's doing something good and he's doing it for the same reason that we are. So your criticism is not fruitful. Your criticism is only hurtful. See, the problem with criticism is that it tends to be demoralizing. Criticism is like a wrecking ball. It can tear down quickly, but it can never build up. 
And building up is what we're called to do as, as disciples, as children of God. Paul said in Romans chapter 15 and verse 2, let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And then he said in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, verse 26, that, that we should let all things be done for building up. In Ephesians 4, verse 29, he, he told us to let no corrupt talk come out of our mouths, but to only speak that which is good for building up. And then in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 11, we're told to encourage one another and to build one another up. You can go throughout the New Testament and find instruction after instruction about how we're to improve each other, how we're to elevate each other, how we're to build each other up, how we're to encourage one another. But you're never going to see Scripture tell us, hey, it's your job to criticize one another. And so while criticism functions like a wrecking ball, encouragement, encouragement functions like a lift. Now, I'm not all savvy on mechanical equipment, so somebody's going to correct me afterwards on this, and that's fine. I'll share it with you. Hopefully, they'll do it in a way that's building me up, not tearing me down. But think about this. You have cranes. You have these great uh, machines that are able to do so many different things. I got on a website last night. I just wanted to see how many different attachments you can get for a crane, and I got tired of looking. But here's the thing. A crane has multiple functions based on what's attached to it. So you can attach a wrecking ball to a crane, and you know what you can do with that wrecking ball? You can tear something down. You can destroy something, and you can be very good at it. But if you change the attachment, you can put a variety of different lifts on that, train, that, on that crane, and you can pick so many different things up so that you can build a building like the Empire State Building so that you can construct something that reaches high into the sky, and that crane allows you to do things that you otherwise would not do, but it all depends on the method, the strategy, the attachment that you put on it. As Christians, we're called to be uplifters, not destroyers. Someone once said, flatter me and I may not believe you, criticize me and I may not like you, Ignore me and I may not forgive you, but encourage me and I will not forget you. Let's remove the blindfold of negativity when it comes to criticism and let's operate only as people who build up. But there is one final blindfold we do need to address or one final aspect of the blindfold of negativity we need to address. And that is that we may be wearing the blindfold of negativity when we become defeatists rather than optimists. A defeatist is a person who expects to fail. An optimist is a person who is hopeful and confident about the future. And the classic example of these two types of people appears in Numbers chapter 13, where we have the story of the 12 spies. Probably a story that you could reiterate to me. Think about it. You have the children of Israel who have been delivered out of Egypt across the Red Sea, and now they're standing on the edge of the promised land or close to the promised land. And God instructs them to send spies out to investigate this land. They choose 12, one from each tribe. They go, they spy out the land, they come back, and they have a unanimous report. It's a glowing report. Hey, this is the best land we've ever seen. 
This land is flowing with milk and honey. This land is awesome. But they also report back that there's a lot of people in the land and its towns are well fortified. They are unanimous in that report. But that's where their unanimity ends. Because the spies diverged on their outlook toward the potential success of conquering that land. The majority of the spies tend to be exact. They saw this as a lose-lose situation. According to Numbers chapter 13, verses 31 through 33, these ten spies gave an incredibly negative report about the land. They said, we're not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we are. In verse 32, they said, the land is a land that devours its inhabitants, and all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And in verse 33, they said, we seem to ourselves like grasshoppers. So the majority of the spies decided that because there were giants in the land, there was no way they could take it. They accepted defeat before they ever encountered a battle. And I want you to think about how these spies are remembered. They're remembered as wanderers. Because they're numbered among that entire generation of Israelites who walked around the wilderness waiting for the next funeral because they were defeatists. They didn't get to go into the promised land. But these ten spies weren't the only spies that went. There were two others, and we know them as Joshua and Caleb. And they came back with a different report. They saw this as a can't-lose situation. In Numbers chapter 14, verses 8 and 9, they said, If the Lord delights in us, He will bring us into this land and give it to us. And in verse 9, Don't fear the people of the land, for they are bread for us. Their protection is removed from them, and the Lord is with us. Do not fear them. Caleb and Joshua decided that because God was on their side, there was no way they could lose. They believed that they were already victors before they ever set foot in the land that God had promised to give them. And how are they remembered? They're remembered as heroes of faith, and they're the only two of that generation that got to go into the promised land. You see, we can operate as defeatists, believing that there's no hope that we can't win, that we're not going to be able to overcome, or we can view life as optimists because God is on our side. And that's what Scripture calls us to do. Scripture declares that we should be optimists because the end of the story has already been written, and those who are in Christ are guaranteed victory. Listen to what Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 57 and 58. He said, Thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And because of that, he says in verse 58, be steadfast, be immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in you, that in the Lord, your labor is not in vain. He's saying you're already victorious because of what Christ did. John would say something similar in 1 John chapter 5 and verse 4. He said, everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, our faith. Both of these inspired authors are claiming advanced victory. And they can make such a claim because when Christ rose from the grave, he rose victoriously. And if we are in him, guess what? 
we rise victoriously as well. The victory has already been obtained. The end of the story has already been written. We have no reason to think that we're going to lose. That's why, as Christians, we're called to live with hope. And I'm reminded of a story that you're probably some of you are familiar with. Back in 1981, a businessman named Eugene Lang returned to PS 121, the elementary school he attended in East Harlem 50 years earlier. He was there to address the graduating class of sixth graders, and his message that he had prepared was to tell them to work hard and then they'll succeed. But on the way to the podium, the school principal told him that three-quarters of the students would probably never finish high school. And so he made an impromptu change to his speech. He promised college tuition to every sixth grader who stayed in high school and graduated. And of those original 61 students that were present that day, 54 remained in contact with the organization he set up to assist them. And more than 90% earned their high school diplomas or GED certificates. And 60% went on to pursue higher education. Their percentage dramatically increased in comparison to other students at that school. And you know why? Because they had confidence in their future. They had hope. So they weren't blindfolded by negativity, even though their very own principal proclaimed that most of them would not even graduate from high school. They had hope. And it changed the way they viewed their future. What about you? Are you going to live with a blindfold of negativity? Are you going to continue to live a life that just complains instead of finds contentment? Are you going to settle for a life in which you criticize more than you compliment? Are you going to be okay with a life of worry instead of a life of faith? Are you going to be satisfied as a defeatist? Or are you going to become an optimist? Because Scripture declares that those who are in Christ have hope. So let's take off the blindfold of negativity. Let's get rid of the criticism. Let's get rid of the complaint. Let's get rid of the worry. Let's get rid of the defeat. And let's live boldly, knowing that the victory is ours because we're in Christ. If you struggled with complaining, if you've struggled with worry, if you've struggled with being critical, if you've struggled with being hopeless, we extend an invitation today for you to turn that over to God and start anew. Today, if in hearing this message, you recognize that you're outside of Christ, that you're not numbered among the hopeful, then we invite you today Confess your faith, your belief that Jesus Christ is the risen Son of God. To repent of your sins 
and to be baptized for the forgiveness of those sins so that you too can be numbered in Christ. Do you need to respond today? Because now is that opportunity while together we stand and sing.